think about how they can instill love in their actions towards customers. That is radical thinking. In the tech world and in the business world and in the consumer world, to think about loving our customers and not just like, we love you, you know, here's a coupon, but actually actually having like motivation of love toward them. The really, really good companies are not afraid of that. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Sarah Hatter, my special guest on today's episode of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Sarah is the founder and CEO of CoSupport, a business that has helped over 200 companies create excellent customer support experiences since 2011. Sarah is also the organizer of the Elevate CX conference and the best-selling author of the Customer Support Handbook. Yep, that means she literally wrote the book on customer support. Sarah describes herself as being spiritually passionate about good customer support and has an immense amount of wisdom to share with you. In today's episode, Sarah and I sit down for a candid and engaging conversation about all things related to customer experience. Plus, we get deep into the joys and pains of entrepreneurship. If you're wondering how you can provide your customers with the best possible experience or want to learn how to apologize in case you slip up, you won't want to miss this episode. It was such a joy speaking with Sarah, and I sincerely hope you enjoy our conversation. As always, I'm your host, Eric Turnison, and this is episode 151 of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Wait, what's my first line? <laughs> welcome. <laughs> I haven't done this in a couple weeks. I usually say, welcome to the shows. Yes, we're recording, Matt, but this will all get cut. No, leave it in. This is great. People got to is... see behind the curtain what it's like. Sometimes it's just, you know, you got to piece it together. Oh, you you have no bit. idea. You have no idea about <laughs> some of the things that have happened, but it always turns out to be a very you, you well polished. You have too much polish. If you have too much polish, I think it seems insincere. And I think authenticity when it comes to, you know, becoming someone that people can trust and lean on for advice and wisdom, you've got to have a, a little bit of edginess to you. So, you know, leave it in. Yeah. Let's just roll into this very casually. So let's do it. I was actually just out in California for. Oh really? For Where a week. were you? I was in uh, Venice Beach. Nice. I used to live on Highway One, right there on Lincoln Highway. And yeah. so you're not there anymore. I'm not. I'm up in Northern California. I grew up in Northern California. My whole family's here. I was away for about 15 years. It was kind of like a slow progression back because I lived in Chicago and I always said I'd never move back to California. And then I said, okay, well, I won't move to San Francisco, so I moved to right. LA. And then I was like, well, I will move back to like El Dorado County where I'm from. So now I'm in, yeah, I'm in Sacramento in the state capital. It's amazing. It's wine country. It's great. My whole family lives within about half a mile of me. So that's nice. My brother lives in South Pasadena. So I was able to visit him while I was out there. And I have a brother in Connecticut, a sister in Florida. My parents are in Florida. So, and definitely during this time, I I often felt like, oh, it'd be nice if uh, people were closer. So. You're in a good situation. Yeah, it's been it's been good timing for me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Unexpectedly good timing. I really appreciate what you said about the uh, authenticity and just kind of going with it. Because I mean, that's been a big part of of my entrepreneurial journey. Is just I always say like ignorance was one of the main things that helped me to kind of get to where I am. Because oh yeah yeah, if I knew too much about what it would be about, or if I thought too much about it, you could easily get overwhelmed. Yes. And I find myself that, you know, in that place too, sometimes where that's my most unhealthy state is just getting out of it. Right. Just like going to get a real job, like going to get a degree in library science or something, you know, completely unrelated to being an entrepreneur. So you're right. I mean, there is, there is an element to it that you can never know until you're in it. You can never really know what it's like, what the life is going to be like being a, a business owner or a founder or an, or an employer for, for gosh sakes, you know? Right. So yeah, I definitely feel you on that one. But it's such a weird animal, right? Like, cause we, this word entrepreneurship gets thrown around so much, but I feel like it's more of a lifestyle, right? Like, and, and you yes. can call yourself an entrepreneur at some point, but it ultimately, like all labels, it just it minimizes the complexity of what it actually is. Right. And I also think that there's something about people's character and people's personality typing that leads them into this type of career. 
I've always been seen as very radical and rebellious, even when I was a kid. And I grew up in a very conservative family, very conservative town. It was I was kind of the outlier a lot because I loved to read. I loved the arts. I would listen to show tunes on cassette tape, you know, like always thinking <laughs> of the wider, the wider, bigger world out there. Yeah. I was very into the arts, very into writing. And those things weren't necessarily, I think, top of mind for a lot of people in a very working class neighborhood working class environment. And I, I do find that people who are terrible employees sometimes make really great business owners. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and I was a terrible employee. You know, I'm I'm constantly questioning the whys and the hows and the ethos and the all of that all of that stuff. But I think it also lends itself for me to be really serious maybe is a is a good word for like the ethos that i put out for my company the t- decisions that i make the ways that i treat my employees and how i manage and kind of the business that i pursue so intentional that's the word i wanted to right. use intentional let's talk about that transition so you were an employee at one point so when you say you were a terrible employee like what were <laughs> what were some of the qualities of a terrible employee that you exhibited well i you know when I left the last job I had before starting my own company, I referred to myself kind of as like a peacock in a cage. And I feel like I am, you know, in the Myers-Briggs analogy, I'm an, I'm an ENFJ. I'm very extroverted. I'm very questioning. I'm very experimental in my thought process. And usually, that, especially in small companies and in flat companies in the software industry that are being led by, you know, rich white males. They really just want people to kind of fall in line and and do the work that they need to get done. And I'm so much more of a questioner and experimenter. I also just like, when I was in my 20s, I didn't really have great emotional maturity to think like I shouldn't talk back to an employer. I shouldn't question the why, or I shouldn't say that's not a good idea, right? Like those are things that maybe some people learn that you just kind of like shut up and keep up. And I didn't do that very well. So Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that I was like a slacker at all. I think if anything, I was just better off being more idealistic, being more of a pacemaker than than sitting at a desk somewhere. Yeah, I think that that's a great image of a peacock in a cage because, well, I mean, peacocks really aren't flying birds, but it's this idea of like, you have so much to offer and based on the environment that you're in, it just did not align in at all with what you actually had to offer. Yeah, there's no point to that in captivity. Right. There's no point to it at all. It needs to be sort of free roaming and, you know, have its natural access <laughs> access right. sort of like balanced out. So when I was growing up, I wasn't the type of person who was like, I'm going to own a company one day and have employees and not, not to mention like multiple companies mm-hmm. and multiple brands never crossed my mind. It happened, you know, by circumstance and burnout, as it usually does in this in the tech world, especially. Very rarely do you see women kind of pivot that way, but a lot of a lot of other people do. They kind of get to a point where you realize, like, this isn't how I want to spend my time. I don't want to just like slave away making somebody else's dreams come true. You know, I don't want to just build a beautiful house for somebody else to live in. So yeah, you know, that's just, it just kind of happened. It spiraled, spiraled more quickly than I anticipated it would. And 10 years later, here we are. Yep. And like, you know, coming back to labels again, like we talk about, okay, you're a business owner and you have employees, but it kind of like just happens, right? That you, you go out to set something and ultimately, yes, you hire people, you have employees, but how do you visualize it? How do you look at the people who are part of and assisting on your journey? I think they're all the dream makers. You know what I mean? Like, what do I have to have happen? I can't do that myself solely individually. Lots of people can. Freelancers do a lot. Sometimes people who work on, you know, design contracts or whatever as their own standing freelance self, that's great. But for the kind of work that I do, it has to be collaborative. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, I work in this environment where we are creating customer experience processes and systems and personas for other companies. And it's not a good idea to just have a singular voice involved in that. You really have to have these layered perspectives come to the table to create something that's inclusive for everybody, that creates something that's you know helpful for everyone and effective for everyone. So for me, it's a privilege to be an employer. It's a huge privilege to make payroll, you know, every single right. month or you know, whatever it is. That's always been my primary 
motivation and, and keeping my company, the, co- the company part of things alive. And also, you know, I love seeing people thrive doing good work, work that excites them, work that they're passionate about, work that comes easy to them naturally that they realize is actually just their giftedness kind of shining through. So that's been a huge privilege to me. It's very selfish, you know, to say something like that or self-indulgent to say something like that. But in the midst of how difficult it is sometimes to own and operate a business right now, a bootstrapped business, there's so much on the swing side of it that's really fulfilling as well. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, it takes a village. Yeah, you know, of course. And, of and course. one of the things, <laughs> one of the things, especially at this time, that I lament from time to time is that mm-hmm. the distributed nature of of our world and how having community becomes yeah. so much more challenging. Just everybody living in all these different places. But I do feel like the companies run in a certain way. Definitely rebel against the word company, but you know they become these villages because we're all, you know, you have the bread maker and the the mayor and all these people who contribute their talents. And ideally the bread maker is just as happy as the person running the thing and making right. sure that you're holding the container for everybody to operate and offer their gifts. And to me, I am a hundred percent on the same wavelength that you that it's a privilege to be sitting in the position. And also it doesn't come without its own, challenges. Um, And I know for me specifically, it's come up a lot that I am not the right person for this job. Mm. You know, like in my journey, I've been asked to switch roles a lot. You know, you start kind of in the trenches and then as things grow, you can't continue to do that low level work yourself anymore. You have to find people who can come in and take those roles. And then you naturally have to bubble up to play other roles that need playing. So in my journey anyway, I've had to bounce around a lot to fill the space, whatever needed to be filled, which is how I ended up where I am now. And, and again, it's going to change. I already see the things that I'm going to have to do differently in the future. And I wonder if you've had similar experience in your journey. Oh, absolutely. You know, when I started my consulting firm in January of 2011, I specifically had been working in customer support, customer experience for a very well-known software company. And it started to be a point where for about a year's time, about eight months to a year, our customers or fans or followers would be writing support emails to me and then saying, this was a great support email. I would love it if you helped my company do support. Or could you come in and teach us how to do this kind of support? Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. And so I started doing kind of consulting on the side. And then I said, you know, well, can I curse on this podcast? We can cut that out if I can't curse. Yeah, you can totally just express yourself in whatever <laughs> way you want and we'll take care of anything we need to. So I was being shut down a lot by my employers about like side work and stuff like that. And I kind of just had this realization like, fuck it, I'm going to do it anyway, because I think people are asking for help and they need help in an area that to me, I'm so passionate about, almost spiritually passionate about the way that we communicate to customers, paying or free, whatever. That, that is a whole other podcast that we can talk about. But what I started to do was consult first by myself. Then I hired my first employee about four months later. Then I started getting a lot of requests to speak at tech conferences. I was on podcasts. I was on you know people's YouTube shows. I wrote a book. And then we decided, like, let's start this conference because... I don't want to be the only one talking about this. I will burn myself out. This was in the first year of my career. I spoke at like, you know, over 50 tech conferences and all this stuff in just 2011 alone. It was ridiculous. So I had this thing going into 2012 when we started our conference. I said, I want to put myself out of business. I want to teach everyone how to do this as well as I do to have the ethos around it that I have, to have a philosophy around customer experience like I do, to create better language and better processes to create more sustainable companies through customer Mm -hmm. experience. That was my goal. I wanted to put myself out of business. And we started the conference where I would find people doing my job at these rando SaaS companies and pull them on stage and teach them how to speak and say, you have a story about something that you're doing that's great. Let's tell it. That spiraled into three conferences a year, 30 to date, 20 speakers a piece, two to 300 people at a time. And I really 
really legitimately in the last nine years have done what I intended to do, which is put myself out of business. I'm no longer the sole voice speaking about this stuff. In fact, I see people all the time on Twitter or, or tech news or whatever, big companies talking about stuff that I was talking about in 2011. That's mm -hmm. in our book from 2014. And in some ways, I think a lot of people would find ego attachment to that. And I don't because I don't think that this is singularly my passion and my story, right? Yep. What I did was really like pave the way and give people language about it, give people language around what it means to have this sort of customer experience. And it's, and it's great. But now what I'm seeing again is that we started doing these events January 2020 rolls around and our great success bringing people together in community and events is now now having to pivot again. So right. I'm no longer an event producer for our community. Now I'm sort of this community person and figuring out what that means and figuring out what the next step is to not just put 20 speakers on a stage at a time, but now figure out a way to be a center for career growth and personal growth for 1800 plus people that are in our community. So, I mean, I feel you. I think that one of the best things you could ever do is, is really number one, be okay. Letting go of your ego around ideas and creation and getting credit for things right. because the important thing is getting the information and the passion out there and letting that sort of disseminate to other people. And two, it's really important to get very good at seeing other people succeed with the idea that you started and, and kind of fly off with that, right? Mm -hmm. You have to learn how to not just be good at accepting that, but being excited about it. And so that in turn, I think will inform how you adjust to having new roles and pivoting as they say in the tech world and changing course and or as I like to say, course correcting. Right. All of that stuff comes down to not being attached to the ego side of things, I think, which is also part of my big philosophy around <laughs> customer experience. <laughs> the way that I look at it nowadays is kind of like, you know, we're gardeners. When you set out to grow, to plant something, you have a desire for the fruit that comes in the end, but there's all this stuff that has to happen. And a number of skills that you have to employ to do that. You need to know the type of soil that's mm. appropriate. You need to have the seed. You need to water it. And it's like nature naturally pushes you to go through the cycles of its own growth process. So right. if you continue to water it more than it should be watered and pass the time it should be, then you kill the thing. So if you're attached to any one of the phases of the gardening process, and disconnect from the natural flow, then you end up destroying the thing you're trying to create. So to me, that's that's been one of the biggest lessons. Like the whole thing that was my challenge was also the biggest lesson of the journey of starting a company because I did have to let go of the ego stuff. I did have to allow mm -hmm. myself to flow and with what was being asked. And the fact of the matter is it's awesome. Getting to the places, like you said, where oh, now I'm not the sole fire behind the company. Now right. there are new people with new ideas. And it's like a child growing up, you know, it's a baby, you're taking care of it and you're sole provider. But then as it gets older and educated, it has its own personality, its own desires for where it wants to go. And you just become that kind of like parent that has to let it travel as far as it can while not allowing it to walk in front of traffic, right? So there's this kind of like, looseness of of allowing it to do but also holding it to a, a consistent vision you want a good analogy about this from california i grew up in wine country and that mm -hmm. idea around gardening around pruning your vines is considered regulation like regulating mm -hmm. um, making sure that there's balance to your crop or your let's say your plant or your bush or whatever your plant or your gardening your company there has to be consistent Pruning at the beginning, the peeling back, right? That's very tough and difficult and painful to do sometimes. But then mm -hmm. you can get into that stage of like regulation, which is like, how do we keep the momentum going? How do we keep the fire going? And that's still a really important part of leadership. Not just that we raise up other people to kind of like take over for us and see our vision through, but that we are we are equipping them properly to continue that on, right? right? It can't just be me and it can't just be them. It has to be more and more and more. So yeah, I'm with you. Right, so you don't peace out, basically. No, I wish I could sometimes. <laughs> Dude, I remember the first time I got like a big check. 
probably 2011, maybe 2012, it was like a big, like huge five figure check. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I could just go to Tahiti right now. Just pack it all in. Like, this is great. You know, like I'm done. No more need to like fuss or whatever. But at the same time, you know, I mean, I know that sometimes people do that. Most of the time when we see it happen in our industry, it's just due to burnout. It's due to being unfulfilled, pushing passion out there and not having it returned. If your passion is not being returned to you, either in fulfillment from mentorship, fulfillment from leadership, or actual just company progression if you're not getting that back in return for what you're putting out then you're you're not gonna you're not gonna survive it right and so that's when you see i think people really peace out (laughs) i think when you're looking at companies that have grown this sustainable infrastructure of culture it's because there's really high reward despite all the pruning that goes on yeah i definitely did my own peace out like four four or five years (laughs) in yeah like Because I was really burnt out and I I went to Mexico for six weeks, but it ultimately ended up being a a very important turning point because I got this message because originally I was just planning to go to a different place, but basically have have everything be the same. I would have my laptop, I would still be doing whatever. But then I got this um, voice coming to my head or something that says, you're not going to take your laptop to Mexico. And then of course, like that raised fear with me at first, like I was like, I'm not going to have my laptop. But then I looked at it. I was like, why am I so afraid not to bring my laptop? And then I realized, of course, how much of my identity was tied up in who I was when I had my laptop. And so I was like, okay, well, that's stupid. That's silly. So I decided not to take it. And of course, as part of that, to prepare for that trip, I had to make sure everybody was empowered to run things when I was not there, which was another thing I, I realized I hadn't done. I always needed to be checked in with on things and certain things. So anyway, it worked out so well and I was relaxed and I was like, wow, the company didn't blow up and I'm fine and everything's good. Yeah, this is the way it's going to be basically going forward. And that was the, that was the big shift that happened for me. Yeah. And I think that for you, now that you have that maturity in your leadership and that maturity of self, you have tools to prevent that from happening at the same scale for the same reasons, right? It might happen for other reasons and it might happen at a different scale, but at least now you've kind of equipped yourself a little bit better, you know? Well, yeah, it just, it's just really like having self holistic self care, be a part of life in general. Like don't push my body and things too far than they should. It's, it's not necessary. And a lot of that was happening early on because I was just flailing about trying to find the pathways to success because I didn't know and just like putting my energy in all different things, like basically a shotgun approach, right? So I was engaging in all these different things to try and find the way. But now it's a lot more focused and you realize like actually less is more. You can accomplish more with more focused and precise ways and uses of energy. Do you find that that whole transformation and and all of that that you went through for yourself holistically, has it changed your perception of what success is going to mean to you right now? Oh yeah, for sure. When I, when I first started the company, I mean, I had that, I was caught up in the whole, the secret thing and I had a dream board. Oh, the secret. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at the it's memory. okay. You can, I, I, I laugh at me. It's fine. Okay. But you know, on my dream board yeah. was like a Rolls Royce and like oh. a beach getaway place and like, you know, basically like material things. Yeah. Which is totally not what I'm interested in now. It's more lifestyle and less is more and okay. the kind of metaphor of sailing, of going through life like a ship on the ocean and the less you carry, the further your goal kind of thing. So yeah, it's totally different. So I wanted to ask you more about your passion around this conversation with the customer. So what do you see as the biggest mistake that companies are usually making in this department? The biggest mistake is not creating a persona for their customer support people to identify with. They just think about deflection and they think about clearing an inbox and they think about swift replies instead of thinking about creating a human element to that 
right? Mm-hmm. When I talk about it in sort of high level, I always say there's a difference between relational and transactional support. We all know what transactional support is. I don't have to explain that to you. Mm-hmm. But we also all know when we've had a really mm-hmm. relational human experience with someone who almost caught us off guard with the way that they they spoke to us or handled a problem or replied to an email. So I think one of the problems that a lot of larger legacy brands are always going to have is volume. And they're always going to use volume to excuse why they don't improve process, to excuse why they don't, you know, hire better or train better or put better processes in place. And when I say processes, I don't mean like tactical infrastructure process. I mean like language training and better scripting of their, you know, automated emails and and things like that. I think that, you know, we owe it to each other on this earth and I'm going to get like way, way woo woo on it. That's okay. That's who I am as a person. We're all on this earth. We're all sort of like interacting in so many various ways together, whether it's on the internet or in person, maybe not anymore, on the phone, all over Zoom, constantly, all the time. And for some reason, when we get to a point where we are writing a customer support email or we're having an interaction with someone who's on the other end of customer support, we lose all like humanity, all expectation (laughs) of humanity. And we're just banging out on a keyboard, especially now we're seeing such huge, huge increases in escalations and tickets from people who are just using the opportunity to get their rage out at someone. We're all angry and we're frustrated. And sometimes the person in front of you who, you know, there's a blank text box for you to just like let it out. That's going to be the person who, who gets it all. But there's a human being behind that, right? On the other flip side of that, companies are employing human beings to do this work for them. And if they're giving them an operational system of get it out of the inbox as fast as you can. Don't let them find our contact information, deflect, deflect, deflect. You're not thinking of the human being who's seeking help. The other thing too is 90% of the stuff that goes through customer support channels that we write to them about or they reply to us with is like not major human interest stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It's shipping times, it's refunds, it's how does this feature work? It's why don't you have this feature? This is not stuff that we should look at as, you know, let's just get it out of the inbox. We have an opportunity to like actually improve every interaction that a human being might have that day through thoughtfulness, right? Mm-hmm. And I always think too, is like any opportunity you have to instill some goodness and joy and humanity and thoughtfulness and empathy, regardless if it's a refund request or if it's a, you know, you're going to save my life when you reply to this kind of thing. I don't think that we should, we should scale it that way. It should just be right. any opportunity you have, you should take it upon yourself. Really, really, really great sustainable companies that have beautiful cultures that where people are happy and proud to work there, I think employ that type of thought process around customer experience. You know, when you spin it into KPIs and metrics and process and all of that kind of stuff, when you lose the humanity behind things, I think that's when you when you just start to, I don't know, get bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I may not... uh bleep out the F word that you used earlier, but I will probably bleep out the woo-woo word because, you know, that word, like, I know why we use it. It's because there's been a momentum in the past of people believing that anything having to do with more subtle energy and emotions and humanness is bad for a certain reason. There's a certain intimidation and fear factor around it. I don't know if this part's going to be bleeped out or not, if we should go into this too, but... I have a really good friend of mine, Josh Ramsey. He's amazing. He used to be the director of customer experience, global customer experience at Hilton. And he gave an amazing talk at one of our events a few years ago about how he trains his employees, how he manages his employees, this idea of treating the whole self in his management. So he's not just interested in their, what they're bringing to the table metrics wise. They're really, he's really interested in their personal and their career growth as well. And he trains them to think about how they can instill love in their actions towards customers. That is radical thinking in the tech world and in the business world and in the consumer world to think about loving our customers and not just like, we love you, you know, here's a coupon, but actually (laughs) having 
actually having like motivation right. of love toward them that you know also kind of sparks empathy in you for whatever's happening that sparks you know interest in the human being who's actually requesting something of you it's kind of a trickle down theory right those kinds of words really are i don't want to use the word intimidating i want to use the word like fear inducing to people a lot of people respond to things out of fear and don't call it fear right they right. kind of shirk back about stuff but Again, I think the really, really good companies are not afraid of that, of showing that type of persona, of showing that kind of empathy, of showing that kind of interest, human interest, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, their employees and their customers as well. Right. Well, and I want to, I do want to dive into this because okay. I have a big relationship with words because the thing is like a word is really nothing. Love as a word is nothing essentially because what you can have is like, oh, love is trending right now. Get our marketing team together. Figure out how to get love into our messaging. And you can see from a mile away that it's, you don't feel it. And so this image comes to my mind anytime I get into a topic like this from the Tao Te Ching, where he talks about water and how water is something you can't grab, but you can create a container for it. And I think <laughs> the things you're expressing is like, you know, because some companies will hear this and be like, okay, yes, let's implement this. And then we'll be like, okay, here are the guidelines for how you treat. But it's the same exact problem that you had before. Yes. And yes. now people are just forced to be <laughs> robots about how they're expressing love. And it's like, no, you, the only way you can get the flower of love to fully be truly expressed is if that person is coming from a loving place, which has all to do with the community they're involved in, what is their work environment like, stuff like that. You can't dictate how they should communicate. No, and you can't just have a script, right? right. I think that I used to rely heavily on that when I was teaching and training and speaking at conferences that were like very heavily developers who are typically more process oriented thinkers. I would always tell them like, look, just fake it till you make it right. Like start trying to sprinkle this language into how you speak to people and right. soon it will become more natural to you. I still believe that that's possible. However, the other element beyond why are you changing your language when you speak to customers is, you know, what's the point of it there, right? So one of the things for me is like, I'm a, I'm a big stickler for like apologies, mm -hmm. huge. When companies or corporations or for whatever reason have to apologize in any way to customers, if, if I've had an issue with the company and they need to apologize to me, I'm the worst, worst person to <laughs> be involved with that because I'm so yeah. about it. I, and that has so much to do with my background and my growing up, my generational trauma and all the stuff that I have to unpack emotionally myself. This is how it's coming out in my giftedness around customer experience is that when it comes to an apology, you cannot say to people, we apologize for the inconvenience. Right. That will set me off like you have no idea, right? I train people all the time. I've, I've come up with lots of companies who have paid me a lot of money to come train their teams. And I've said, okay, well, you need to say, I'm sorry. You need to say, I'm really sorry about this. You need to tell a customer who's complaining about it, something you're aware of. You need to tell them, you know what? You're right. And I'm sorry. And I've had companies that are like, no. That's no, we're not taking, we're not going to do that. And that yeah. like, I've had, I have one company, very, very, very well-known tech company that I'm actually still a customer of tell me that he refuses to allow his customer support agents to apologize because it shows that they're taking blame. And most right. of the time it's the customer's fault and they don't want to take blame for that. And I'm like, so what? Take the blame. Take it off their shoulders. If they screwed something up and they need help, if it is their fault, do something to kind of lighten the load for them. Even if it's language, the intent has to be, I'm on your team, I'm here to help you, right? So I think the, I'm sorry, and the you're right, and I do want to fix this for you, I'm on your team, that kind of language is really important for us to start accessing and, and giving permission to our, to our support agents to access. But also we have to tell them why they're doing that and why right. we make this change, why we believe in this kind of change. Yeah, and I, I think fundamentally, for my opinion anyway, the why is because when you get into communicating that way, it's again, you can't just say so. You have to apologize. The reason people resist apologizing is because they're living in a world of who's right and who's wrong. Totally. And having that be the important factor. But really, when you come into more being a human being, 
who cares who's right or wrong about something? Everybody will feel good if everybody feels good at the end of the day, regardless of if it means that I crashed the car or you crashed the car. Who cares? Yes. And especially when we're talking about a the type of relationship that a company, let's use the word company is just like a catch-all for someone selling a product right. at a customer, the person buying the product, the relationship that is formed when that customer purchases a product, that doesn't just end. Remember that old Mitch Hedberg joke about he got the receipt for the donut? Oh, and yeah, he's I like, why did one. you so it's like you know, <laughs> we did I not the- need to bring paper into this transaction. <laughs> <laughs> like an end of transaction, right? Right. That's how I think of transactional relationships. But even in the donut analogy, it's not true. Because if it's a good donut, he's going to go back and get another donut. Right. He's going to tell his friends, I want this donut. He's going to bring people there and say, look at this donut, right? So even in those small interactions that we have, there's opportunities to, for us to think relationally. And bad companies, historically bad companies, companies like um, you know utility companies or internet service providers, or even airlines. I've done a lot of work with airlines. Oh talk to me about this. They have this excuse that, well, we're just inundated all the time with people who need help. We're just inundated all the time. We just need to get them out the door, close it, close it, close it, deflect. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is a systematic problem in your process. People are continually having problems with you because you're not fixing the process, the why. You're not right. fixing the whole internal structure of the experience that a customer is having. And yeah, I mean, I think that it really takes what what I love seeing beyond just complaining about airlines and banks and and whatever. I love seeing companies that are being built now from the bottom up with these founders who have this idea that's being instilled in like their company manifestos from the beginning, right? Right. They're building customer-centric cultures. They're building customer-centric companies, products with empathy. That's like my big thing to see that starting to happen more and more and more is they're thinking forward about possible issues a customer might have or problems people might face or what would happen if we did this kind of feature and they're solving it before it happens to prevent it from happening. That to me is the kind of stellar mindset we need more of, right? Which reminds me of another Mitch Hedberg joke, which is uh, when he says, you know, I forget how he said it, but something about like, when you want to bake potato, you need to know like two hours in advance because you need to put it in the oven. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And that's thoughtfulness. I mean, that's just thinking forward. Empathy, I know, is another big, huge buzzword, just like entrepreneurs or or whatever that companies love to latch onto. But what does it mean? It really means thinking about compassionately and thoughtfully about the interaction that someone's going to have with your product and your company and thinking forward and thinking, you know, what are all the ways that we can pour ourselves into solutioneering for these customers when they need us and so they don't need us. But that's the biggest right? challenge, I think, about this whole think situation is because when you say thinking compassionately, I mean, yeah. it's kind of it's like... Another, it's another word. It's like love, Well, right? it's like it's an oxymoron. It's like they're, in, con- <laughs> they're in, in opposition to each other. If you're compassionate, then in your communication, you don't need to think about it. But if you're thinking sure. about it, then you're not compassionate in a way. And so it becomes like this very challenging thing because you do have to have the logical aspects of things. You do have to think about things. You can't just be like, you know, whatever. You can't just throw things to the wind and, and go dance around naked in the desert, you know, <laughs> yeah, which is I, fine. I to experience about that particular <laughs> analogy. But yes, I think that there's too much fear around cancel culture right now for companies. There's too much fear around... PR, control, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I always have these conversations. I can't tell you how many times I've had the conversation about apologizing or having empathy or showing compassion or giving people permission to speak a certain way to customers. And people, you know, usually in PR marketing, they're a little bit afraid of it. And I was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? You take responsibility for something, you give them a refund. You follow up in two weeks to just reach out again and say, I'm really sorry that you had that experience. Is there anything else I can do for you? I remember that one person was like, follow up with someone I've given a refund to. Like, why would I do that? I'm like, because it's an extension of goodwill. It'll take you three minutes. Yeah, and you do, you know, to help people make the transition, you do remind them that, uh, like, look, these How things actually, it? well, and also, it can also lead to your goals. Because if somebody has a good experience with your company, whether it's because they canceled or whether they had a success with your product, they are still 
going to share that with people. Yes, 100%. They still are. They still are going to talk about that. And the sad part, Eric, the saddest part about the job that I do is how the realization that comes to companies when they have success with the kind of language training that, that we bring in, when they realize like, yeah, wow, people are really happy. It's like, no shit, people are happy. You threw out all these <laughs> asshole scripts about, sorry for the inconvenience and thank you for your feedback. Right, right. You threw that out and you were you were a human being and it startled them because in the rest of the world, they're getting sorry for the inconvenience and thank you for your feedback. And you right. stood out to them because it felt like a normal human compassionate being was actually speaking back to them about their $39 refund. It's so dumb to me that we are startled with great experiences as customers. It yeah. bothers me. Like you can tell I'm, I'm like sweating talking to you about this. I get so it's worked great. up. Get sweat it out. You know, no, it's like, I- it's like there's this planet that exists with all these like automated, like replies oh gosh, and you just download, you get one of these deliveries from this planet. You're like, I know it's from this planet. I'm going to read it. Like I got like when the <laughs> COVID situation happened, I oh kept getting God. all these emails in these unprecedented times. I know, from the airlines. Oh. Like we're all yeah. in this together. I'm like, we are not in this together. You're sending me this yeah. email because you're freaking out. And you want me to buy exactly. a ticket on your plane. That's all it is. Can I tell you an interesting <laughs> story about an airline I worked with? I was hired by an airline that was voted the worst airline in the world. And of course, the first thing they do is damage control. And it was the worst customer service, I should say, in the world, uh, in, of all the airlines in the world. They hire me. They give me this ridiculous budget. It was so, I mean, it didn't even cover my flights to get there, right? But I was like, no, I'm investing in this myself because this matters to me. As someone who's on, the, on a plane 100,000 miles a year, this matters to me. And all I could do was invest like little bits of time the one thing that I could do is invest in their language. Language is free and it's easy to change. And if you're working with people who are driven by a script and driven by canned replies and these macros or whatever, I'm going to make those the best sounding macros. I'm going to make their FAQ the best FAQ you've ever read. I'm going to make them sound so great just by changing language. That's all we did. Just an email. I didn't get to touch the phones. Believe me, Mm -hmm. I would have loved to. And they saw like, a 70% decrease in negative customer reviews to their email responses in like less than three months. Those are like real hard numbers. And it comes to small, small changes that again, like language is free. Words are free. Compassion is free. Empathy is free. You can build all this stuff into your company culture. You can start doing this today. If you have to do it before it means something to you, Still do it right. and then learn for it to mean something to you, right? Make it mean something to you, but still start with let's make some changes here. And the number one tip I can give anyone is never again say thank you for your feedback. <laughs> never again apologize for the inconvenience. Think of those as like cardinal sins against your customers. Never use those again. Okay. So speaking of things like that, so imagine you're Moses. Okay. Okay. So you're good? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm a good talker. Good. So. so you're Moses and you come out of the, the top of the mountain. You've got two stone chiseled things. Yep. Yep. You just mentioned the first one. What are some other things on those tablets? Oh, gosh. Stop using the word deflection when you think about processes for customer engagement. There's lots of tools out there that do an awesome job, but I think we need to put a positive spin on what their intention is versus keep people out of the inbox. I think of it as gatekeeping and I don't really like that. Eliminating customer support emails is hard at first, but once you figure out that there's a better way to build a knowledge base, a searchable knowledge base, to use something like Help Scouts Beacon that helps people find things before they know they need to find it, mm-hmm. sending people great onboarding emails and being really thoughtful about if they're not opening these or using these or clicking these links, why? Maybe I should rewrite them. That stuff's really important, right. which is probably commandment number three is that you cannot start a company without a hugely dedicated knowledge base. You can't launch a product. You can't start taking money until you have that solid. Mm -hmm. I know so many people who have launched companies 
a lot of micro founders, bootstrappers, whatever. And they're overwhelmed when they launch a company, they launch a product because they're getting 40, 50, 60 emails a day and they're sending the same reply out. And I look at them and I was like, why didn't you have this stuff all over your website? Because it took too much time. We were really trying to get this out the door and no one really sat down and wrote it. We didn't have someone who that was their job. Well, those are excuses and this is the consequence of that excuse. So that's an easy way to fix that problem before it happens. Yeah, the other thing too, which is really sticky and it's really hard because I understand what it's like to build a company and to tr- want to save money and to not want to take investment and to do it very lean. But you can't just like throw anybody who's standing around at your support inbox without giving them at least some guidance about how to speak to customers, what to say and what to do. That is something that happens way, way, way too often. And then what ends up happening is you get so used to not paying someone to do customer support right. that then when it comes up, you have to pay somebody to customer support, you don't want to pay them because you feel like this is a free job or it's a free or it's a cheap role because well I've been doing it myself as a founder and then we had my cousin's son do it on his summer vacation and so then you're like well I'm just going to offshore it I'm just going to pay someone four dollars a day to take care of the most important aspect of building a sustainable company right like you gotta you gotta think about this stuff if you're going to contract someone you need to think in like the $25 range per hour if you're going to hire someone full-time you cannot be paying them 32, 35, you know, a thousand a year. It really has to be a much higher. You have to think about it as like a career right. career prospect for them. That's a very controversial opinion, but I do this for a living. So, you know. <laughs> well, it's not controversial from my perspective. I, yeah, we, I you know, think we it do would that. be. I, yeah. yeah. So is there anything else? I mean, obviously there's something else, but, you know, like consider our audience here, okay? Oh, man. So yeah, these are... Well, Things that people without like paying you to fly to them, like that they can implement, you know. I think the other thing too is like, you really have to define your why. You have to define what is my manifesto? What is the purpose behind offering customer support to anyone, right? You can just really quickly, Jerry Maguire, this kind of shit right now in a Google doc and say, why do I want to offer great customer experience? Why do I want to offer great support? Because I want people to have a, a good impression of my company. I want people to love my product. I want to vow right now that I'm going to build a product that doesn't require support because it's so well thought out and it's so intuitive for everyone to use. I want to create, you know, a knowledge base that doesn't deflect customers from contacting me. They don't have to contact me because it's educating them. The educated customer is the best customer to have, right? The educated customer is the loyal customer. All of those things that are there that I know people have in their hearts when they're building products beyond wanting to drive a Lamborghini and and have a beach house, there's other reasons why. And I think it's okay to be a little bit spiritual about this and say, like, I have intentions to build a company that is well thought of, that gives people good experiences, that leaves a great impression on people, that maybe I write a support email that is nothing for me to do. It's a three minute kind of interaction that I have and I close it out, but it changes the trajectory of a person's day. It changes their mood. It lifts them up. Something like that, I think is completely appropriate for people to start doing. Mm -hmm. Then they set the tone for what the rest of the company is going to be doing, how the rest of the company is going to be speaking to the customers, how they're going to be thinking about customers in the long term, in a year when they've hired 20 more people to work on customer experience. What is the standard that you've set for them? That stuff is like super, super important. And I know a lot of people too are really relying now on like drip campaigns, even like onboarding drip campaigns. There's no reason why you shouldn't be revisiting those all the time to make sure that your language is on point, to make sure that it's fresh, to make sure that it's empathetic, to make mm-hmm. sure that people are actually clicking through, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? right? If they're not clicking through and you've written all this stuff and people still write you an email about how do I do X and you say, well, it's right here. They're not getting to it for a reason. Start thinking more empathetically about why they're not getting there. So, I mean, clearly there's, yeah, I could go. A lot. <laughs> Well, well, I I think that we've covered a lot of ground here. And I I love how this whole experience has been a reflection of exactly what we were talking about. Like the outline script for this episode is blowing in the wind somewhere. I have no idea. You know, (laughs) we've touched on obviously some of the things are in there, but not in the way of like, oh, like, let's get through this list. Yeah. 
appreciate that. I appreciate, like, again, it all comes down to authenticity. Authenticity has to be a big part of how you present yourself and your company to everyone who experiences it. People know, like you said, they can see it a mile away. They can see that sort of like fakeness trope language a mile away. So be the person who stands out. That's what I always say. So since we haven't talked about your companies that you're involved in, like, <laughs> let's, let's just uh, share people some places where they can learn more about you. Sure. So my company, my consulting company is CoSupport, CoSupport.com. We consult everything where it comes to customer experience. We also handle implementation for small companies, startup and growth phase companies. My community that we built for customer experience professionals and leaders. It's called Elevate CX. It's elevatecx.co where you can find our website. Join our brand new membership community that's just launching. That's the whole reason why I'm using Member Mouse on your on your Sweet. podcast. Sweet. Right? And then if you want to read the book, came out in 2014. It's a little outdated, but it's still really a really great baseline and it includes a lot of scripts and sort of mm-hmm. replacement language that you can start. It's called the Customer Support Handbook. It's on Amazon. It sold 30,000 copies and since nice. 2014. I'm really proud of that. So yeah, I'm, all, I'm SH on Twitter, just the two letters. That's it. I don't know. You can Google me and there's there's you can see lots mm-hmm. of my talks about this, lots of past writings and all that kind of stuff. And again, email me, reach out to me. I'm always happy to help with people, especially founders. And like I said, micropreneurs, bootstrap founders. That's kind of my, my big passion point. That's awesome. Well, I am really excited that you're doing this work and you started a while ago, but I think now it's definitely becoming more top of mind that for people that this is required and not just a suggestion. And so really happy that there's someone like you who's, who's doing this work. And I appreciate you choosing us to help be a part of that because that feels really good. Yeah, well, I think that I really like working with companies or or using companies or being customers of companies where I see my own philosophies reflected and that's all I've gotten from you guys. So that makes me really happy to see that there's more of that out in the wild. Yeah, maybe on April Fool's Day, we'll send you an email that says, we're sorry for the inconvenience. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. (laughs) You'll you'll get a really nice reply back from me, I promise. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think there's no better way to wrap up this podcast then to, I only have like one line that I'm supposed to remember in any given podcast, which I forgot in this podcast. And it was to welcome you to the show. And so (laughs) I'm going to do that now, right before I thank you for being on the show. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's great. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show. And it was great talking to you. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate your energy and uh, I'm sweating too, by the way. So we're, we're just both like, we should like, we, like a sweat lodge experience. Like we're in a teepee somewhere uh, having this like big spiritual conversation about yeah. customer experience. But hey, that means it's real. That means we feel it. It's real. I'm going to bust out my, uh, my drum and start <laughs> chanting. But yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. I love this conversation. It was awesome. All right. Bye, sir. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the entire conversation with Sarah. I hope you are now walking away with some information and inspiration that will help you in your own business. I'd like to extend my sincere gratitude to Sarah for coming on the show and sharing so freely from her experience. I really appreciated her bright spirit and deeply human approach to business. To get the links to all the resources we mentioned in this episode, head on over to subscriptionentrepreneur.com slash 151. There you'll also find the complete show notes and a downloadable transcript of our conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more engaging interviews with successful entrepreneurs, experts, and authors, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We have a growing library of engaging episodes with many more to come. So thanks for being here and we'll see you next time.